Sorry about that. Here we go. One, two, uh, uh, uh. Welcome, everybody. It's Hollywood Godfather Podcast again, and it's our 101st show. This is amazing, amazing. I remember when we did the first. So here we are, and we're going to open this show with a new format, somewhat new. We want your requests, and a gentleman, or was it a gentleman or a woman, Megan? It was. It was a gentleman named James asked us if we could do a show strictly about New Orleans and Carlos Marcello. Well, you know, I spent some time there, which we'll get into, but Pat, being the investigator he is, and he and I discussed what he's about to tell you, but I, I like why this means so much to us being Italians, number one that most of these areas that become mafia areas were for different reasons when they started. And I, I'd like Pat to open this up, if you will, Pat, and tell our audience. Contrary to popular belief, the origins of the... you got to move closer to your mic. My audience can't hear you. The, uh, oh, there you are. There it is. Sorry about that. Okay, the origins of the American Mafia did not begin in New York City. Everybody thinks that the boat uh, docked on Ellis Island, guys got off the boat and they created the Mafia. That's not the case. Uh, it actually originated in this country in New Orleans late 1880s, uh, where uh, Italian immigrants landed first and formed... Uh, what was known or what was called by the press as the Sicilian Assassination League. That was what they were first called. And in 1890, the first known mob hit in this country, the first contract killing, was the killing of a police superintendent by the name of uh, Hennessy, David Hennessy. A superintendent is the same as the chief of police. He was on his way home and he got gunned down uh, he survived for a while, and uh, he was quoted as saying, the Sicilians have done this to me, or those Dagos did it to me, depending on who you talk to, Dagos being a slang term for Italians. Uh, the citizenry was outraged. I think they were outraged at two things. One, that Italians are moving into the neighborhood, and two, that this group of alleged killers the uh, Sicilian Assassination League, the press, the, 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 the press named them. I mean, that's not what they called themselves. They were uh, uh, a loose band of, uh, of, 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 of criminals. But anyway, a dragnet was created and they arrested 17 Italian immigrants. Of those 17, nine were held on this most serious charge of murder. And of those nine, one case was thrown out, and the other one uh, uh, was a verdict of acquittal. The citizenry of New Orleans was so angry, they decided they were going to take the law into their own hands. They shot two. By the way, these people, uh, the the remaining citizens, uh, 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 if you will, were found innocent. Uh, they were being held for a while, but they were going to be let go, and the people in the area stormed the jail, uh, shot nine of the defendants, of the 11, and two others, uh, and uh, the rest escaped with their lives. Now, the explanation behind the original killing of uh, this chief of police, David Hennessy, was that there were two factions, two Italian factions 
in the uh, in the city of New Orleans. One was the Matrangas, and the other one was the Provenzanos. Two families, if you will, that were vying for territory. The Provenzanos had the power, but the Matrangos were moving in, so to speak, taking over territory. Hennessy was playing favorites. He favored the uh, Provenzanos. He supported the Provenzanos. Now, there had to be corruption involved here. Wherever you have crime, you have police corruption. The way it was, the way it is, the way it'll always be. And I'm not casting dispersions on cops. You had some good and some bad. But this is the chief of police outwardly supported one of these factions, the Provenzanos, which led the Matrangas to have them killed. But the people they arrested didn't do it. Uh, but just for the fact that they were tainted with the mere uh, accusation of the crime. And we can't forget also that the fact that they were Italians, they were outsiders. This is something new. Same thing happened when the Irish came here and the Chinese came here uh, in the Western part of the country to build railroads. The same thing happened. They were, they were blackballed, kicked out of the country, laws were passed. Uh, uh, well, it that, happened in New York City also soon after yeah. that with the, yeah. uh, with the Italian immigrants. Yeah. In fact, you told me a story which we put in the book. Right. Uh, showing you a clipping one day when you were in the Waldorf. Yeah, when they when they were building the reservoir in in Central Park, they had a a, a, a job opportunity, a want ad, and it listed every every nationality, and the last behind Chinese, black, and all were the WAPs. And. And the WAPs used to stand for without papers. They just came here. And they were offered the least amount of money and on that list. And that's when people like Costello and Anastasia and different, they, they wanted to correct it. And that's how New York fell into place after knowing what was going on in New Orleans. Well, Costello told you this for a reason. Basically, it was to show you that uh, the Italians will never be stepped on again. Right. Carried around this article for who knows how many years. I mean, I mean he did. And, he, and the other reason he told me, too, he, does, he, he didn't want us to, want me to think that the organization out of Sicily was for that reason. It was to organize and protect the, uh, the, the Italian people coming here, may, maybe from Naples or whatever, that you know they shouldn't be stepped upon or mistreated, and that's how it started. And then obviously the money and the greed and the, the expansion. As with other ethnic groups, they they preyed on their own people. Right. There, the they couldn't go anywhere else if they wanted to commit crimes and committed against their own people. But in this case of, uh, of the chief of police, he was scheduled to testify against the Matrangas. Uh, when he uh, unfortunately couldn't make the trial because he was shot like 19 times. Right. Uh, so, but that was the first recorded um, mob assassination in uh, American history. That's why. There's always been an enclave for organized for Italian organized crime, which brings us to the subject of this evening, uh, Carlos Marcello, who actually his real name was. Calagero Minicor, uh, when he first came here, came here in 1911. Uh, let, let me just correct you on that, because my oldest son is named it. Cologero. Cologero. Solo Siciliano, Cologero. Like a Bronx tale. Yeah. Yeah, same name. Uh, his family came here in 1911. Uh, Carlos was uh, one year old. The first uh, job that uh, Carlos's father got he worked for a guy that had the same last name. And uh, I don't know whose idea it was, probably Carlos's father, to change the name. So he changed the name from Minicorte to Marcello. And it was changed legally. Uh, and oh, that's, wow. how he got the, that's how he got the last name. Carlos was primarily a gambler. That was his racket and always was until the day he died. I mean, he was involved in other things, like all organized crime figures. Yeah, a lot of things, <laughs> which we'll He's get into. He's considered by, by both folklore and fact, well, some fact, to be an extremely powerful guy 
Uh, and generally, when you think of powerful mob figures, they have a lot of members in the crime family to back them up. For instance, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, Gambino crime family has, has 2,000 made people in it, plus sure. all the associates. And then the rest of the families are smaller, but they're still big compared to Carlos Marcelo's family. He had 12 people in it. That was it. That's it. That was it. He had just 12 people, but he wielded a lot of power, specifically political power. Well, you know, geographically, the area that he, he controlled because of the Anastasias and all through the years as was the waterfront. And uh, he, he, like you pointed out, he ran New Orleans with an iron fist and nobody crossed him, even though there were only 12 that, that they knew. And, and, and you talked about the Metragnus, that when he, they stepped down, he stepped in at a yeah, very at a very young age. So yeah, he was uh, he was an old time gangster in in an old time. He was called before the uh, Kefauver Committee in 1951. To those of you who don't know what that was, that was a, a federal panel, if you will, investigating organized crime. Up until that time, organized crime. What everybody knew about organized crime is what they saw in the movies. James right. Cagney, Bogart, what they heard on the radio. Uh, the Kefauver Committee tried to bring it to life to prove that this is a real thing. Uh, and it was one of the first TV shows. This is 1951. Right. This was televised and it gripped the nation. Uh, Marcello testified, if you could call pleading the Fifth Amendment 152 times. That's right. And we, you know, what, what people aren't aware of, when you take the Fifth, you can't pick and choose what you're going to take the fifth from. Or, uh, you take the fifth, you take the fifth on everything. Right. Your name. I refuse to testify on the grounds that it's going, you know, it, it could tend to incriminate me. Everything. And, so, and the interesting thing about you saying that, I I, uh, I don't know how this came about, but I, I took the fifth a couple of times, only to be, because I was totally unaware of taking the fifth, and as long as... The, the commission was involved or a grand jury was involved, you get 180 days automatic jail time, and they'll ask you the same question again. And that could go on for a long time, only because I know that because a, a case they wanted me to become uh, and testify on, I wouldn't, I disappeared. But a lot of people don't realize you can get 180 days yeah, do they really do that, though? Did they really put people away for 180 days? Oh, yeah, they did it several times. And they, I knew some case where they pulled them out and, and, and asked them a question again halfway through. Well, the, the object from the, from the uh, mobster's point of view is that if you plead the fifth to every possible, even innocuous questions about where you live uh, or anything like that, after a while... It took 152 questions in Marcelo's case. They're just going to get tired of asking you questions. Right. What the answer is going to be. Right. And uh, uh, Marcelo, though, was a really independent guy. He had a long-standing tradition of independence from uh, mafioso in other areas. In fact, he enacted a policy with his 12-strong family that forbade mafioso from other families to visit Louisiana without his permission. Such was the power of this guy. Well, then, yeah, I, re, I, re, I remember hearing the stories, but, but, then, but he infiltrated Dallas. He infiltrated everywhere, and that's how he... He was a good friend of Santo Traficante, and he yeah. expanded to the five families in New York and Chicago because yeah. it's, it's yeah. where, where we are now in our, in our new book that's called Sinatra, The Mob and Me, I remember the age of 15, in October 1957, I met Carlo Gambino in the morning in the cafe, as I used to a lot after going to church in Ferraris, and he said, I know you know there's a party tonight at the Copa, but I want you to be there a little earlier, around 6.30. I said, okay. And he said, I want you to dress up a little presentable. I want to introduce you to some people. And up in that lobby that night, 
I can't believe that, you know, someone asked this question long before you and I were getting into the book. And when I'm hearing Carlos's name, you know, it, it was an intricate part of our first book for the assassination. We wrote about it. But not realizing, when I got there, Carlo Gambino is holding court in the Copa Lounge upstairs. And the first guy he introduced me to was Sam Giancana from Chicago. The second guy was Carlos. You know, I, I think we should uh, uh, clue the audience in as to why they wanted a, basically a very young man to be introduced around. That was so they would get familiar with your face. Right. Because you were delivering uh, messages. Well, they were going to start something that is a, a very intricate part of even Carlos's future life from that day on and, and Sam Giancana's day on, unbeknownst to me. I met over that weekend probably every top union guy. They were all staying at the Waldorf. And this party, they used a party they were throwing for Toot Shaw for that Friday night because he was a, a degenerate gambler. And on stage was the Rat Pack, including Johnny Carson. Ringside was Milton Berle, Jackie Gleason, Henny Youngman throwing one-liners. In the back of the room was the whole Yankees. I'm talking about Yogi Barra. Even the Giants, Frank Gifford, were there. Who's who of society, the, the news media, the mob, and celebrities were all in there to pay homage to Toot Shaw and get him out of debt one more time. The whole yeah, take that out. night went to him. Yeah, how long did that work out for before it was broken? Well, probably next week. <laughs> but but I, the funniest part of that night, now that I reflect on it, I was wondering, like you pointed out, why does he want me to meet everybody? Because from that day on, or soon after, I was going to travel to meet all these people as a messenger and they wanted to make sure they knew who was coming. And it was the kid, and this is the kid. And 22 months later is the nomination of JFK, and they arranged it to be the new Democratic nominee well, for that president. Was, that, that party was a great cover. Oh, yeah. Sit down. I mean, you know, granted, uh, Toots was a popular guy. But, you know, how popular can you be to get those kind of names? The, the entertainers, yeah, I can, I can see that. But, but who's who in the American mafia? Yeah, that's like hiding in plain sight. Right. Go to the party and let's talk business. And the business of that night was how do we get this uh, this, this young congressman from uh, Massachusetts to be the next president of the United States? And they met for the next two days at the Waldorf and put this whole thing together then that, you know, I only found out as I started traveling, as I started spending more time. It's funny because that the first time I met Sinatra was about three weeks prior at the Copa when he was doing a sound check. And I had a, a, a conversation with him, letting him know how he became my mentor, unbeknownst to him, by a transistor radio. And soon after that, I'm sitting in his audience, not only that night at this Copa, but soon after at the Copa that Jack Entrada was running for Costello at the Sands Hotel. And sitting at the next table is Senator John F. Kennedy. I mean, it's the history of all of this. I mean, they were so smart in how they did these things. Yeah, and you know, it's a funny thing. That night, the Copa closed at 7 in the morning. Never did that before. They broke every law. The party went on till 7 in the morning. 4 o'clock, last call, man. Yeah, and it was written up. It was written up in a lot of the columns that we'll be exploiting in the book. But um, this gentleman who asked for this, this question has become so timely in what we're doing now. <laughs> And we have so much more to yet to about Carlos. I mean, his his 
reign with, with organized crime spread throughout the United States and very well respected. His uh, problems with the Kennedys began in 1959. Uh, he appeared before the United States Senate's uh, McClellan uh, uh, Committee investigating organized crime. This is uh, this was like the the, 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 the Kefauver Committee only nine years later. Much more powerful. The uh, Kefauver Committee didn't solve a damn thing. Didn't do anything. They had the hearings. It was on television. Got good ratings. And then it died. Nobody paid attention to me. What I found out about all of those, even when, uh, you know, uh, Costello was called in front of them, they all, it was election year. They, were, they wanted to show the public that they, they're going to crack down on organized crime. And it was good for the budgets for the FBI and even them getting elected for their, for their districts that they represented. But like you said, nothing happened. It was all over. <laughs> What made it in 1959 was uh, the uh, chief counsel was Robert Kennedy. Right. Uh, and whether the uh, committee didn't mean business, he did. Oh, no, he, he, he loved it. In fact, as you pointed out, even in our book, for the longest time, J. Edgar Hoover denounced the FBI. There was no organized crime because they had him as a cross-dresser, they were blackmailing him. And his only bookmaker, his only personal bookmaker, and he was a degenerate gambler, Jay Hoover bet every day. And Frank Costello took his bets personally. And if he won, he'd call the next day to get paid. But if we lost, you would never hear from him. Don't worry, he just kept betting. But from then on, because the way Kennedy browbeat him, and embarrassed him at that committee, he uh, avowed the Kennedys to be his, his enemies. He hated them. Uh, he also, you met him uh, when you went on the errand for Costello prior to the assassination. Did you meet him in Moscow's restaurant? Of course. Okay. Uh, he, he frequently met there, according to uh, things you read, but I understand he owned it. He owned it. No, he definitely owned it. No, he, he owned it. it. I know that. And, you know, and that's why he did it because he, he was so paranoid about bugs and stuff. His, his guys who cleaned it, they not only cleaned it, they were on their hands and knees looking for wires and bugs and he had music playing all the time. No, and I'll tell you, he had the best pasta vongole bianco in the world. For the people who don't know what that is, it's clams with white sauce. And I, I had a bowl every time I went until one night only. He wouldn't let me stay. I left. But, you know, he, uh, but I, only because of my relationship during those three or four years with him, and then to go back for another reason, which we'll talk about, this guy was part of the commission which was Maya Lansky, Frank Costello, Tony Accardo. Accardo was always the head of Chicago. I mean, Sam Giancana was the street boss and the front boss. But all these guys, Savella and these guys out of Kansas City, they had a tremendous respect. And when, when you know, they, they got, obviously, JFK president. And uh, unfortunately... He didn't do the deal because of his brother. We know what that's about. But through that whole ordeal, you know, as you know, they they import they deported him. Yeah, well, he went he, he went on what he thought was a routine trip to Guatemala. And while he was down there, they deported him down there. He came from Tunisia. He didn't come from Guatemala. No, but I know. But his paperwork was in an order, so they grabbed him there. Bobby was trying to use that. Well, two months later, he's back in the States. Right. Through Central America, through Mexico, and he entered to the Texas border. But uh, uh, thereafter, he, he fought efforts by the government to deport him. Uh, he was charged with a conspiracy to defraud the government by obtaining a false Guatemalan birth certificate. These are bullshit charges. I mean... Oh, no. They, yeah, they, they were doing everything on this guy. You know, basically a fine, you know. A conspiracy to obstruct the United States government. The exercise of its right to the post Carlos Marcelo. He was acquitted of, of both charges, though. 
Yeah, well, the whole thing, that, that, was, in, that was already in, by 1959 by then. You know, that whole thing. And nope. he, he was already controlling Jack Ruby in Dallas. He expanded it. Him and Costello are partners in all the gambling, you know, all the uh, slot machines and everything. Well, that's how uh, him, and, him and Costello were friends, but they were also business partners. Costello had thousands of slot machines, and, and uh, the one was based on uh, Carlos's okay. Right. So it was a mutual friendship. A highly respected guy. Uh, but he, he spent some time in prison, and this guy didn't. Uh, he wasn't a John Gotti made out of. I think guy. he did. I think he did nine years early on, didn't he, for a bank robbery or something? Uh, well, he got he got a, he, he got arrested and uh, for consorting with uh, known criminals in the La Stella restaurant. You know, in Queens. No. The Forest Hills on Queens Boulevard. I knew. I used to eat there. Uh, he got arrested for consorting with uh, with known criminals, his friends. There was a big raid in La Stella's. It was supposed to be like a mini uh, Appalachian meeting. Their restaurant was closed. Feds busted and locked everybody up. So he was he was consorting to people with people like him. Uh, but like the Appalachian meeting, which nothing came out of. Right. In, in uh, La Stella, all the charges were dropped. Then he went back to New Orleans. Yeah, but early on, I know when, when you know, as he was start, growing up, he was doing a lot of street stuff. And I heard he did nine years. He did a lot of times uh, stretched out. He did uh, two years for assaulting an FBI agent. His first trial resulted in a hung jury. He was retried and convicted. This guy got a lot of years, but did little time. He got two years for assaulting a federal agent. He did six months. Makes you wonder. Right. Federal charge. If you know anything about federal time, you do your time if you get convicted federally. There's no such thing as parole in the federal system. No, I know. <laughs> you can get 15 percent of your time could be shaved for being a, a, a good prisoner. There's no parole. You don't. In other words, you don't get five to ten. In other words, in the federal system, you get seventy months, eighty months, ninety months. They don't talk about in years, but his twenty-four months was somehow miraculously shaved down to six once he was in. He got out of that, and there was others. Uh, he was. Uh, him and two other people were invited for, uh, indicted in New Orleans for conspiracy, racketeering, racketeering, mail fraud, wire fraud, uh, a scheme to bribe state officials, uh, insurance scams, resulted in an FBI investigation known as Bree Lab, uh, where they allowed the admission of secretly recorded conversations, uh, which demonstrated corruption at the highest levels of state government. Marcello was convicted with two other people. Uh, the two other people were acquitted. He was the only one that didn't get acquitted. And he got locked up, but I, I felt to find how much time he actually served. Well, the interesting thing about all of that, you know, and, and as we know, and his influence in getting JFK elected was... I mean, he he brought in the waterfront from New Orleans to San Francisco, which they still controlled at that time, and the Anastasias had from Canada to New Orleans. So that, that brotherhood, the International Longshoremen's Union alone, was a huge vote power. And then they were all involved, and Santo Tropicante was a very close friend to, to Fidel Castro. And... When the conspiracy was that they were going to, the Kennedys were supposed to invade Cuba, as we all know, the Bay of Pigs. But Robert Kennedy, which you and I touched on in our first book, was that they didn't see eye to eye with his brother or his father, and he went after everybody. And they, they were trying to prove that, you know, because he had his own shooter there, and maybe, maybe many people knew that. Lee Harvey Oswald was Marcelo's private shooter. He heard him on the radio. He did the history on this guy. This guy was a Marine, trained as a marksman, but he was a Nazi lover. And when he got mustered out, even as a Marine, he was in Germany, and they threw him out. But he heard him talking on a late-night radio, and then Marcelo's, I mean, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's parents 
lived in New Orleans. And he found out he was in town. He invited him to the restaurant. Well, he lived there for quite a while. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald formed an organization called uh, Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Right. So he was a socialist. He, right. Uh, like he defected to Russia. Uh, but w once he got there, he said, whoops, you know, I think I did the wrong thing. And he, he spent as much time trying to get out of there as he did trying to get into the country. Right. Time he uh, met a woman. Uh, uh, her name was Marina. Married her and came back. But he he lived as a, as a kid with his mother Marguerite. His father was long out of the picture. I don't even think he knew who his father was. Uh, but they lived in New Orleans for a long time, and they moved back several times. Right from around the country, they moved around a lot. But somehow, uh, Marcellus found out about this kid's uh, you know hatred for the American government and. And, uh, the, the, and the passion, like you're saying, to Cuba. And, and so he he convinced him to, you know, kill the president. He was the shooter that we all knew about. And the other guy that they had control of was Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was Marcelo's guy and Costello's guy, and yeah, actually Chicago also, running all their gaming stuff in Dallas. He was primarily uh, connected to Chicago. Yeah. Well, he had a couple of, he had two clubs in Dallas. Right. Uh, toward the end, uh, he was connecting with Chicago a lot because other clubs in uh, Dallas were, were uh, unlicensed strip joints. And they were taking his business away from him. And he figured he could go to Chicago so they could apply pressure on these people to uh, push them out of business. Because the clubs, the illegal clubs, were pushing Jack Ruby out of business. Jack Ruby was a little bit uh, uncontrollable, so to speak, and a vicious temper. Uh, well, and, he thought he had the backing of Chicago behind him. That's why. Well, he, he thought he did. Right. Uh, Chicago didn't do anything to help him at all. Well, he was. Why they didn't? He was bringing so much attention to them, which they didn't need at that time, because first of all, they got JFK to be president, and now, as we all know. Soon after, they have to take JFK out, and he was a piece of that puzzle. Well, uh, Ruby was known as a loose cannon, and Chicago really didn't want much to do with him. They, they, uh, they thought he had psychological problems. They wanted to stay away from him. Well, I'm surprised he I probably did. But yeah. th th they, they convinced him to be, we'll get you down, the, down in the passageway of the jail when they're transferring Lee Avi Oswald you shoot him and you'll become a hero because you shot the guy that they thought killed JFK because Lee Harvey Oswald got all the publicity. The other two shooters didn't until later on when they did that whole theory on tracing the bullet that it couldn't be hit three people. They found out later Lee Harvey Oswald hit the governor of Texas in the front seat and Johnny Roselli's bullet was the kill shot from the sewer because on the angle that's what blew out JFK's back of his skull. But um, who, what's this kid's name that asked this question? James. James. Did he oh, give yeah. a last name? <laughs> no, just just James. We go by strictly first names around here. Well, I, I hope he's not with the FBI because we're giving an awful <laughs> lot of information. <laughs> It's so crazy, man. It, it, it's, it's, it's amazing how this stuff is world history now. It, it, Have it, you ever heard of a mob lawyer named Frank Ragano? Frank Fagano? Ragano. R-A-G-A-N-O. Where, where was he? In New Orleans? He was, uh, he was Marcello's attorney. Oh, a lawyer. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's a mob lawyer. In fact, he wrote a book surprisingly enough, called Mob Lawyer. He wrote it in oh. 1994. Uh, and in the book, I don't know how he got away with any of this, but uh, this wasn't the first time. He, he This guy liked to talk. Odd for a, a, a working mob lawyer. But he said he relayed a message in 1963 from, uh, from Jimmy Hoffa, who was the head of the team since at the time, to Marcello in Santo Traficante, the mafia boss of Florida. Uh 
urging the two mafia bosses to kill Kennedy. Uh, Regano later claimed that for, uh, he, he, he put this out four days before Traficanti died. <laughs> they, they conspired. Well, he, he uh, if I, my memory serves me right in what I've read, he was the lawyer that prevented another deportation for Marcellus in, yeah. in no, 61. Yeah, he was still his lawyer for a long time. Yeah. I mean, he was still working when he wrote this book. He was still actively an attorney. I'm surprised uh, he stayed around as long as he did, naming all these names in his book. He's probably probably dead by now, I would assume. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, Morgano testified before the uh, uh, Warren Commission. He testified before the House Subcommittee on Assassinations in 77. He was, he never shut up, this guy. But the Warren Commission, to me, even be, being as young as I was and overhearing what I heard in Chicago, how they gave the Warren Commission, I think his name was Eli Warren. What was his first name? No, no. Uh, what was his name? Supreme Court Justice. Yeah, some, some, but in Chicago. It was Earl Warren. Yeah, but they was controlled by, by the Chicago mob, and he did the investigation. <laughs> He was the head guy. That, he didn't do anything. He he organized everything. Right. Investigators all over the country. I think they just wanted to drag their feet because the American public today still don't have the opportunity to review these files to see who was really involved in John F. Kennedy. It's over 50 years now. Well, they get released periodically. Yeah, but Trump Trump just locked it down again. The last group of files to be released were in the late 90s. Uh, but the Warren Commission's always, uh, the report's always been out there. I read it 27 times. Uh, but uh, yeah, the files get released. No, it's never, but they're not the whole file. They release what they want of it. They talk about the report. Right. The files get released periodically. As, as time goes on, more and more files get released. Well, that was a great question, James. I hope uh, before we go, is it okay if I ask a quick question? Yeah, and you know what we forgot to do is our commercial spots. I know. We'll just do one before the mailbag. It's all right. Okay. We'll go we'll get more as we go. Please. Ask um, we're just question. starting out. We're just getting used to it. Um, one thing I want to ask is, so one of Marcelo's nicknames was the Godfather, which of no, course we've heard that his, term. His real ones was the Little Man. Right, but he wasn't. He also called the Godfather. Oh yeah, Godfather. New Orleans. Godfather New Orleans. Yep. Yep. So I'm just I'm just curious. I don't know if there is a specific answer for this, but do you know how or why that term started to be used in an organized crime world? Because it's primarily a religious term. Yeah. Definitely. Do you have any idea where its origin came from in the mafia realm? No, that's a good question, but it's it's, it's definitely a religious term because uh, a, a godfather or godmother is a substitute for your mother and father at birth if they should die. They're taking the responsibility of raising that child Catholic. Then when you are a confirmation age, late uh, 12, 13, or 14, you're supposed to be of clear mind and pick who you want to guide you the rest of your life if your parents are dead. So I think the Sicilians and Everybody else figured he's the godfather for the whole neighborhood. <laughs> and he's taking the place of your father and mother because when you do the code of Amorte, you give up your mother and father and you take that family in. And you're actually releasing your total loyalty to him and your mother and father and family are, are now in secondary position. So maybe that's... Because he, he, I think that sounds like a good answer to me. Well, the, the <laughs> ceremony, sense. which I always thought, no, I don't know how many people know this, the ceremony to become a made, made person, you have to pick your patron saint. You pick a, 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 a card, like mine is St. Anthony. So if I was going to be made, they put the St. Anthony in your hand and light it on fire <laughs> till it burns to ashes, and you denounce him, 
and then they cut your finger and take the blood of the new family. I don't know if anybody knows that ceremony, but that's that's the Sicilian ceremony. Symbolism of the burning a saint's picture is if you betray the family, you will, you will burn in hell. Right. Like this picture of yeah, I'm saying that's most of it is a religious. It's a, it's a whole religious, basically ceremony to go into the mob. <laughs> Interesting, I didn't know that. Yeah. Here's an example: uh, if your grandmother is dying and she's gonna, and she is going to draw her last breath in a few hours, but your boss calls you in for a meeting, you go to the meeting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Your loyalty is to that family. Once you're made into that family, that's it. That's crazy. Wow, well, I didn't know that. I'm sure a lot of other people listening didn't know about those ceremonies. Yeah. I definitely have never attended. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I'll have to pass, but I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, so before we get into the mailbag, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But stay tuned. We'll be back. We'll be back. Please. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco extra virgin olive oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneFineItalian.com That's CorleoneFineItalian.com We're back, ready right. for the mailbag. Our first Let's mailbag for our 101st show. I'm excited. Let's do it. <laughs> first one is from Avo. Avo says, I read the book and I was fascinated by all the stuff that has happened to you in life. I do want to ask, what was your favorite memory you had with Elvis Presley? Just hanging with him. I mean, that guy, you forget about it. You know, we all knew Elvis. I, I, I was privileged, which is another, again, the research in the Sinatra book is insane, but uh, most people don't know it, but Frank Sinatra hated rock and roll and, and thought it was the noise and ridiculous and didn't like Elvis Presley. So now I get a call from Maya, and he says, Johnny, what are you doing this weekend? I said, uh, what do you want me to do? He said, I think you should come down here. I was in New York. So I go down there, and they're planning to shoot a special for Elvis Presley coming home from the war, because he was like a hero in that uniform, and he didn't dodge the draft like so many people were doing at that time. And they, he made the announcement that Frank Sinatra is co-hosting the show. And I'm saying to myself, how did they get Frank to co-host this? I, it was a stupid question. Maya said, I asked him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right, next one is from John. John says, Gianni, I love the book and have the audio and digital versions. It's one of the most enjoyable reads I've ever had. My question is about, is about the mob in southern Connecticut, particularly Bridgeport. What do you know about the killing of Frank Piccolo in the early 80s? Also, the Curcios, who are pretty well-known mobsters locally in years past? Well, you'd have to ask the Patriarchs at that time, because that whole area was controlled by him, and then uh, obviously Whitey Bulger. But uh, as far as the Italians, the Patriarchs in New England that was there. They they control that in Boston. So, I have nothing to say about that. All right. Well, John continues on saying, "Thanks for the podcast. I listened to almost all of the episodes in about two weeks at work. I'm not quite caught up, but almost. I've been telling everyone I know that listens to the podcast to listen. I'll be there. That's for sure. All right. Next one is from Sean." Sean says, can you give us any updates on the Hollywood Godfather television series? My friends and I are di dying to know when it will come out. Very timely question. <laughs> I think you can look for it as early as the fall 
of 2022. And we're going into pre-production now, but like as all of us are, we have a COVID situation and that's governing us when we could start. We're hoping to start shooting principal photography as early as April or May. How's that? Sounds <clears throat> promising. I'm excited. We all are, thank God. All right, next is from Linda. Linda says, Gianni, Patrick, and Megan, what are each of your favorite holidays? I like Arbor Day. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Groundhog Day, I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Um, I, 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 like, I like religious holidays. I mean, even though Christmas is, you know, Christmas, but I think they convoluted so much with Santa Claus and all the falsities. So I would have to say Easter. I like Easter. I don't know why it's, you know, the resurrection of the Christ. There's no, you know, I mean, yes, there are Easter bunnies, but they, they never really were a big part of. And I like fasting. It brings you back to your religion. What we did, even on Holy Thursday, I had to go to seven different churches with my grandmother. And uh, Christmas, to me, was a novelty. You know, Christ was born, but... <laughs> Santa Claus had a bigger part in it. <laughs> How do you feel, Megan? Which one is yours? I think as a kid, mine was always Halloween, just because I loved, you know, the fun of it. But I think these days it's it's Thanksgiving. Because, yeah, Christmas is, is nice, but I think Thanksgiving is great because it's not so much about the gifts and things like that as it is about awesome. spending time with, with family. And I certainly love the food, so that's that's a plus as well. I've yeah, always, I've, Pat, what's yours? Yeah, Thanksgiving too. For that reason, it, it isn't, uh, you know, commercial. No one's giving gifts. It's just people that want to be around each other and have a good time. Absolutely. So I've, I've been calloused by all those kind of things because of my childhood, number one. And then, uh, you know, it's uh, and then I, then I created so many families I couldn't go to any of them anyway. Cause I, had, <laughs> I had ten different families. Where would I go? No. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Next one is from Thomas. Thomas says, "How does New York in the old days compare to New York now?" Oh my God! There's no comparison. Jesus, I, wouldn't you agree that? 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I tell you, I have been back to New York in a while, but through the miracle of the internet, I see pictures and videos of Manhattan, particularly Manhattan's west side, which really depresses me. Yeah, me too. I remember Manhattan as a kid. I used to take a train there with my friends just to walk the streets. In Central Park, Fifth Avenue, uh, going downtown, walking from uh, the, the battery to Harlem. I mean, this was just a great town. Now? Yeah, the last two or three years. It, I, it started I, with de Blasio and now with this, this COVID. Right? It really... I, all the problems that this city's having, uh, it, it begins at the top, and that's the mayor. And it's, I mean, just for... Well, blocks, even the governor. He ain't helping matters here. People using the streets as bathrooms, junkies shooting up on in front of schools and it's just bad so well you know again it's that homeless thing that is a part of the de blasio situation uh no bail you get a ticket you get a bench warrant and show up when to show back they're never coming back there's no bail for uh most crimes except the most violent crimes and these people know it. they're career criminals a lot of them and say well get out of jail free car lock me up again why do i care yeah, but sure. they're doing violent. They're breaking windows and robbing stores and getting out. They're violent crimes. But people on people violent crimes. There's bail for that. Right. Things that are, uh, you know, crimes against the, the community. Like you're saying, breaking windows and urinating on streets and harassing people. It's, it's, it's legal now. In fact, public urination is no longer a crime. I'm sure it isn't. You're well, kidding. You, you could smoke marijuana. Well, that's the marijuana is going to be legal everywhere. Sure. No, but I'm saying, but on the streets, you could never do that before. Yeah, Whatever. In fact, in states where 
marijuana is legal. My, my son spent a lot of time in uh, uh, Colorado, yeah. The first state to make marijuana legal. You couldn't smoke it in the open. It was legal, recreational, wow. but you couldn't smoke it outside. Right. So, you know, just little rules. But comparing uh, old New York, if you call old, like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, to now, night and day, and now it is. Yeah. It's like, there's no comparison. Moving on. Moving on. Last last one for this evening is from Frankie. Gianni, what is the most expensive purchase you've ever made? The most expensive? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably my first boat. I was 21. I bought a, a $3 million Riva, 148 feet, all cash. <laughs> That's, ins- that's just absolutely insane. Well, you asked a question. I didn't say it. <laughs> I know, but I was curious, too. It's just that's just wild. Uh, My only question is, why, why don't you invite us on this boat? Come on. Well, I can find it again. I know right where it is. <laughs> you want to come to Barcelona or Madeira, Spain? I absolutely would. Yeah. No, we, 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 we may take it out for a couple of cruises. When we're celebrating our nomination in Cannes for Hollywood Godfather. Hello. There we go. Perfect yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Next. All right, guys. That that's it? it for tonight. A bit deep, I thought you already <laughs> left. <laughs> no, never. Well, we want to thank all of you again. We're starting a new season. This is our 101st show. We're still going to appeal to you as we always do. Write reviews. Tell your friends. We want to expand and be in your house for the rest of our lives. God bless you. Stay safe and enjoy whatever you celebrate. God bless. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be wrong. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3033. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. Feinstein's. I love being here, man. It's so much fun all the time being here. Yeah, yeah, yeah.